The following audio presentation is the second part of a larger work. To accommodate the dwindling ordinal counting abilities of the average North American media consumer, we ask that you listen to the first part before proceeding to the second. Put simply, one comes before two. And we're back with part two of our interview with Ray Paget, lead impresario of the blog Cover Me, author of the book I'm Your Fan, and king of covers. Last week we talked about, well, a lot of things. Leonard Cohen, the Pixies, cover songs, pretty much everything. And today we continue that conversation. If you haven't listened to part one, you might want to listen to part two. And don't forget, one comes before two. (laughs) I'm sure you knew that, but it bears repeating. And then I guess the other, you know, sort of more general promise of the tribute album is a i like cover songs right again not all cover songs a lot of bad we've established a lot of bad covers out there but generally i like cover songs so if you can you know if you're grouping a group of cover songs you know along some sort of thematic thread which is typically you know who wrote them who first recorded the songs you're covering uh, i think it can be really interesting and it can be a way to get a whole bunch of people you might not expect to cover X or Y artist, you know, get them to do it. And it's not like these covers would exist individually. Um, like for instance, with I'm your fan, I interviewed a whole bunch of the artists on there and a lot of them kind of said, Oh, you know, I love Leonard Cohen. Fine. What you'd expect. But a number of them kind of said, including a couple of the best ones kind of said, yeah, I didn't really care that much about Leonard Cohen to what you were saying about the French fanzine being such a magazine being such a big deal. Like I basically did it as a favor to them. I wanted to stay in their good graces. And then in one case, the guy became a huge Leonard Cohen fan. And in another case, the woman did not, but she ended up recording a great Leonard Cohen cover that she, she certainly would not have done without kind of <laughs> feeling pushed into doing this tribute album. So, you know, if a tribute album is facilitating 20 new covers of whoever, I'm on board. How did you go about researching this book and figuring out who to interview? And furthermore, how did you go about interviewing everyone? Like, what was your process in writing this book? Sure. So this book, I kind of grouped the interviews in two categories. As I said earlier, I wanted it to be partly about this tribute album and partly about tribute albums generally. So the easier group to make was this tribute album, who was behind it and who was on it. And then I just went out to as many of those people as I could. And I don't know, I got 20 maybe. Um, And then group number two is a little more nebulous, which was interviews about tribute albums generally. And for that, it was kind of a lot of like looking in liner notes, looking at the producer credit. Sometimes it's curator credit. Um, You know, my first book, Cover Me, was much more art. It was this one's sort of artist focused, but that one's entirely artist focused. So it's like interviewing famous musicians. Whereas for this part of it, I interviewed a couple famous musicians, but it's a lot more interviewing like the behind the scenes people who maybe have never been interviewed before. Cause like, you know, tribute album producer is kind of an esoteric <laughs> title and people are not beating down their door. But yeah, that was like, so that, that took a lot of research even to figure out who to interview, much less than to do the research of the interviews. Um, then in terms of how I did the interviews, you know, it depended on who I was talking to. Like if it was an artist, I wanted to very specifically talk about their cover on this tribute album. And then secondarily, if they had, you know, were on other tribute albums, 
I might ask a few questions about that. But those were a little, those were pretty straightforward. Again, it was also kind of like my first book where I was writing about specific cover songs. And, and because there's a lot of research you can do into these people, whereas the producers, you know, I try to research a ton before you do an interview, but a lot of times, like, they're behind the scenes guys. They don't have a website. Like, they don't, you know. <laughs> they don't have a Wikipedia. Yeah, they're, they're not on Wikipedia. So you kind of just have a set of general questions, and then, you know, they they tend to be pretty open with their time, which is great. So, you, you know, you just kind of get a conversation going, trying to figure out, you know, what why they did the tribute albums they, they did, how they did it. I was interested in both the sort of big picture, you know, ideas behind it, what their goals were, and also the like nitty gritty of like the specifics of how do you get these artists? How do you make sure they actually do what they say they're going to do? How do you clear it legally? Um, so there was a lot of that, uh, you know, and that was, that was kind of interesting. Again, it's, they're not the main names, you know, they're not like the famous people, but I found them really interesting interviewing these sort of behind the scenes figures who were really important in this genre, but, you know, like producers and sort of curator types generally don't tend to get a lot of spotlight. Do you have a favorite cover on this album? Like, like a lot of things it changes. My initial favorite back, I think I first heard this album shortly after starting the blog. I've known it for a long time. And the one I loved was R.E.M., which we've mentioned at first. We take, just amazing. I still love it. it Is that just because you really like R.E.M. or you just particularly like the version? I particularly like the version. I'm not even did I, I'm not even sure I knew the Leonard Cohen version at that point. Like I kind of I think I was getting into Leonard Cohen then. So I maybe heard them around the same time. But again, it's I, I, I grew to like the Leonard Cohen recording, like we talked about the 80s-ness, but the R.E.M. I think is just so accessible. It's it's kind of, you know, and you, and, and you think of Leonard Cohen songs, as many of them are, as kind of slow, dirgy, ballads, sad. And that's really an upbeat rocker. It's an upbeat rocker when he does it, and it's really an upbeat rocker when R.E.M. does it. But then one that I think kind of is like a recent favorite, maybe, that um, I, I knew and I liked, but I hadn't paid much attention to is Suzanne by um, this African singer who is not with us anymore named Jeffrey Oriema, who was involved with, you know, Peter Gabriel has like a whole world music label and empire. And he was, Mm. he was part of that world. And he, you know, Suzanne was at the time, the most covered Leonard Cohen song by far. Hallelujah has since surpassed it largely because of the album. It was his signature song, right? It was his signature song. It was the one Judy Collins had that first hit with. Like it was the song at the back in the nineties and, and so many people had covered it. And when in a case like that, it is so hard to do a version that feels fresh or different or original. I mean, again, think of hallelujah. Now it's like, how many times have you heard people sing hallelujah? Suzanne was like that then, but I thought his was, you know, he, he, he brings sort of some, you know, African music sounds to it. He, he changes some, some of the words. Um, I think it, it really, really stuck out to me. And then I, the other one, and this one really, I had not given it, I would say, proper credit when I first heard it. Because Leonard Cohen has written a million amazing songs. But he has written one song that I think pretty much everyone, maybe including him, acknowledges is not is, is pretty terrible. And it's a song called, the, and bear in mind, this is the real title of a real Leonard Cohen song, like the poor, Poet Laureate of Canada, etc. It's called Don't Go Home With Your Heart On. And it does not improve from there. It is just ridiculous. But, and this cover, I think, sort of leans into that. 
Yeah. Like, it doesn't try to pretend that this is, like, secretly a genius Leonard Cohen song. No, they it's these two uh, Australian guys, one who was in the Triffids and a friend of his. And I interviewed one of them, and he basically said, you know, we wanted to really mess around with the Leonard Cohen song. Like, we really wanted to just screw it up and change it entirely. And we figured, like, let's not take a song that, like, people are going to hate and be pissed that we did. Let's take a song that, like, no one liked in the first place. And so they, like, <laughs> basically make it, like, an Australian attempt at, like, early hip-hop. They said they were trying to be Eric B. and Rakim. And it does not sound like Eric B. and Rakim, but... They are incorporating these sort of hip-hop production touches. At one point, one of them does like an Eddie Murphy impression. Like, it's ridiculous, but because it's taking a song where this sort of ridiculous approach fits, it actually kind of works. And so that one, I, again, kind of, you first listen to it and you're like, this is a bad song originally, so why do I want to hear a hip-hop version of it? But I, I grew to like it, especially after talking to him and hearing kind of his mentality behind it. Yeah, usually bad song turned into hip hop is not a winning formula. No. <laughs> but I guess every once in a while lightning strikes and it works. Yeah, it's I I, I so I, yeah I really appreciate uh, <laughs> what they did with it because they didn't take it seriously at all. And so many Leonard Cohen covers, including most of the ones on this album, you know, take Leonard Cohen very seriously. And and fair enough, I'm not saying they shouldn't, but it is refreshing to have one that is just absolutely off the wall. I actually, Leonard Cohen into hip hop sounds like a niche of one song, but there's another one. We're doing a big Leonard, best Leonard Cohen covers list uh, next week. And this, this particular one is not on it, but one that is, which is equally ridiculous, is a decade or so ago, Beck covered an entire Leonard Cohen album with a bunch of, with Devondra Banhart and MGMT. They just like, all went in one studio for one day and did an entire Leonard Cohen album. And the songs are off the wall and some of them are terrible. But one that's kind of maybe in the so bad it's good um, vein is Beck and MGMT and all do the do Master Song, which is not a song that it's a, it's not a like it's not a ridiculous song. Like don't go home with your heart on, but it's not a top tier song. People don't cover it very much. And they did it kind of like uh, Rapper's Delight by Sugar Hill Gang. And it is just off the wall and ridiculous. But when you're sifting through Leonard Cohen covers and there's so many that are slow and torchy and, you know, with jazz and folk inflections and like I'm making fun of them, but I like a lot of these, but there's just it's just sort of overwhelming the volume. It's really refreshing for someone to just be like, hey, I'm going to just turn it into, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang. It's true. Um, yeah, Leonard Cohen is very serious. And it is good to inject a little levity into the music if you're doing some covers of, of Leonard Cohen. Okay, so speaking of slow, dirgy ballads by Leonard Cohen, we do have to talk about Hallelujah because <laughs> like it or not, it is probably the thing that makes this album most significant. And it is, according to you anyway, arguably the reason that you chose to do this tribute album and not another. So... Why is Hallelujah significant to this album? So Hallelujah first came out on a Leonard Cohen album called Various Positions in the 80s. And this was of the sort we were discussing earlier where extreme 80s production all over it. And it was also at a point where, whether because of that or just the market generally, Leonard Cohen's stock was pretty low. So low that his U.S. label wouldn't even release the album in America. 
They said, eh, the hell with this. The actual quote that sort of became famous is his, the head of the label told him, Leonard, we know we know that you're great. We just don't know if you're any good. Like, like you may be a genius, but if no one's buying your records, you know, how does that help us? So Hallelujah was nothing. It, became, it came out on this album that wasn't even available in America. Um, it, you know, in Europe it came out and it kind of went without a trace. Um, and that more or less stayed the case for five years. The one person in that five years who, like, knew Hallelujah was a great song, funnily enough, was Bob Dylan, who covered it a couple times in concert. But he covered it, you know, quite badly. Uh, and it did nothing. It did nothing for the song's trajectory. Leonard felt really good about it, which is nice. Leonard thought it was an important song. But basically for five years, that was it in terms of the world acknowledging Hallelujah as an important or noteworthy song. But John Cale of the Velvet Underground um, saw Leonard Cohen in concert shortly after uh, this album came out. And he heard Leonard sing the song Hallelujah in New York. And he thought it was an amazing song and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't find it to buy it, but he thought he was amazed when he heard Leonard sing it. And so when he agreed to do this tribute album a few years down the line, he wanted to cover Hallelujah, but not having access, not having the album, not having like access to it. He needed the lyrics. So he, you know, gets in touch with Leonard Cohen. I think the French magazine editor said they, you know, kind of connected them. And he said, hey, can you send me the lyrics? I'm going to do a cover of this. And John Cale said that his, you know, this is the age of faxes. His fax machine all of a sudden spat out 15 pages of lyrics to Hallelujah. Just pages after pages. The original song, I think it has four or five verses, not 15 pages worth. But Leonard had just written so many that he cut. And so the John Cale then sort of says, oh, well, this is great. I can just pick different lyrics so he records a version with lyrics that are largely different than leonard cohen's original um he said you know the hallelujah sort of famously mixes what you'd call the sacred and the profane right a lot of references to sex and a lot of references to god um john kale didn't care as much about the sacred part so he sort of dumped all <laughs> the old testament references and just made it you know really sexual um and then the so to, I guess answer the main question of how this album made Hallelujah famous was that was kind of the bridge. And it was the bridge between Leonard Cohen on the one side of the bridge and Jeff Buckley on the other, because Jeff Buckley, who would go on to basically make Hallelujah the song it is today, did not actually cover Leonard Cohen's version of Hallelujah. He covered John Cale's version of Hallelujah. That was the only version he knew at the time. Again, Leonard's album was not widely available, though I think it had been released by then in a small way. Um, but Jeff Buckley, when visiting some friends, pulled out this tribute album from their shelf. I'm your fan. Um, listened to it and just fell in love with Hallelujah. And so he covers John Cale's Hallelujah. And then subsequently, everyone else more or less covers Jeff Buckley's cover of John Cale's cover of Leonard Cohen. So it's this sort of cover chain. And it took a few tries before Hallelujah became what is today by far the most covered Leonard Cohen song. And and probably one of the most popular cover songs, period. It's become a mainstay of, you know, singing competition, reality shows. And it's just, it's an obligatory uh, vocal showcase piece for any singer wishing to demonstrate their chops. We are recording this on um, Friday night and just last night, and I'm not putting this in the cate category of like great things Hallelujah has accomplished, but just last night, 
after Donald Trump gave his convention speech, not one, but two covers of Hallelujah played. I mean, it's that, again, that's not like on its Hall of Fame, but in terms of songs that sort of have that level of like cultural acclaim and cultural just everywhere. I mean, I'm sure people know Hallelujah and have heard Hallelujah who don't know any other Leonard Cohen songs. Maybe people who don't even know the name Leonard Cohen, right? It's like one of those songs. Paul Simon had a quote where he kind of compared it to Bridge Over Troubled Water, where it's like not just a famous song by a famous musician. It kind of reaches this level of cultural saturation. You said TV shows, that's a big one, you know, um, sort of memorials, you know, televised funerals, big, you know, like another famous recent one on the other side of the political spectrum was when Hillary Clinton lost. SNL and Leonard Cohen died. SNL Saturday Night Live came back and the opening was Hillary Clinton played by Kate McKinnon singing Hallelujah. Like it's that sort of song that just has reached a sort of level of cultural ubiquity that you could only count maybe five or 10 other songs that are that are there. And it's, you know, in a way because of this album. My familiarity with the original came when I was singing in that college choir and we did Hallelujah. And I only knew hallelujah from the movie shrek which i think is probably one of the best film one of the best cinematic uses of that song it's i I think that's a great movie i i I like shrek a lot it's i was just the right age when it came out for it to be you know a favorite of mine when i was young but the actually the i'm your fan produced the people who produced this tribute album i wrote about said that the most money they ever saw from it was when John Cale's version of Hallelujah was used in Shrek. Yeah, they got a wonderful little windfall from that movie. So that's how I knew the song. And I think I had heard the Jeff Buckley version as well. Um, and and then I learned that it was by Leonard Cohen. I don't think I actually knew who it was by. And I didn't know Leonard Cohen very well. And I listened to the original expecting, I don't know, expecting something that sounded like the song I knew. And it didn't. It sounded nothing like the song I knew. It's Leonard just, I heard there was a secret chord. And it's like, it's interesting, but it's not great. It's not terribly melodic. I feel like John Cale kind of invented the standard melody as it's typically sung. Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I think that's true. Leonard, due to what we, you know, due to him not being a great singer, admittedly so, you know, he he would say that himself, would kind of undersing anything, like everything. Like he kind of hinted mel- melodies. There would be melodies. He wasn't just like speak singing, but he, he, Lord knows, was not a belter. And so he would just kind of, you know, gesture towards a melody, give you like the bare bones outlines. And then someone like John Cale or Judy Collins or whoever would come along and, you know, really, really sort of emphasize it. And even John Cale, who is also not a belter, his version is very different than like the TV competition type versions. Oh, for sure. But he can sing in a way Leonard Cohen cannot. So just him and a piano, you know, takes it to, you know, the next step. And then, of course, the third step is Jeff Buckley, who can sing better than both both of them put together. Who, better than most know, people put together. Than, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. So he, he then takes it to kind of where it became. He's the final step in that. Yeah, Je- Jeff Buckley took it to the, I mean, you, you don't get much more dichotomous than, you know, Leonard Cohen on one hand and Jeff Buckley on the other in terms of singing ability. Yeah, which is, again, kind of why I was so interested in this album and in the John Cale version, because 
in so many ways. I mean, it's the bridge historically, but it's also kind of the bridge musically. Like, again, he can sing a lot better than Leonard Cohen, and he can sing nowhere near as well as Jeff Buckley. So it kind of, you know, makes that connection between two extremely different sounding artists. And I, I think I think John Cale pretty much did create that canonical melody. I have heard it sung in slightly different ways. I have heard the melody twisted a little bit. But when I think of that song, I think of of the tune as it's sung by Jeff Buckley and as it's sung by John Cale. So, yeah, interesting song. Why do you think this song has become like a vocal showpiece? Do you think it's because of Jeff Buckley and the fact that he was such a flexible and, um, God, how do we describe his singing? Just virtuosic and, and, uh, I mean, the guy had pipes. Do you think that's why so many people have taken this song and used it as a, as a way to show off? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it is he set the template. I mean, another song I compare it to, even though they're so different on many levels, is Whitney Houston doing I Will Always Love You, which is, of course, itself itself a cover, right? And again, Dolly Parton's version is great, but it's not this huge vocal showpiece. And the song did not become this huge vocal showpiece until Whitney Houston did it. And if you're watching American Idol or It's Like, you see a lot of Hallelujah and you also see a lot of I Will Always Love You to the point that they're both kind of cliches. And in both cases, I think it was sort of this virtuosic vocal performer covering the song that kind of set the template for everyone else to either lean into or, you know, react against. But they are, you know, in both cases, the definitive versions far more than the actual person who wrote them. So, Ray, do you have a favorite cover of all time? So the no is basically the answer. Um, I have a, a million. The one that sort of is closest to my heart and so is like a personal favorite is the one I talked about very early on, that Billy Stewart version of Summertime. A, because if anyone hasn't heard it, seriously, it holds up. Like, I know I've got sort of personal bias that sent me on the path of my whole, whole career. But forget all that. You don't care about that. It's that good. Um, but then, like, another, you know, personal favorite that I haven't talked about, which is also reinvents the song, though, in a different way, is um, Patti Smith doing Gloria, the Van Morrison song. And in her case, she reinvents it some, some musically, but really reinvents it lyrically. Like, she takes... You know, it's it, Gloria is obviously a garage rock standard. Every bar band can play Gloria. She takes bits and pieces of it, the chorus, you know, the G-L-O-R-I-A parts. But she adds her own poetry. She makes it even punkier. Um, that was probably one of the other early covers, maybe not quite as early as Summertime, but one of the other early ones where I kind of was like, wow, I couldn't believe you could change the song this much. And that remains, you know, it's one I've heard a million times. And every time I hear it, I'm kind of blown away all over again. Is that what you most like from a cover? A real like reinvention of a song, taking a song and like making it something totally new? Or do you do you like subtler covers? I like plenty of subtler covers too. I mean, my kind of line, I guess people ask me like what makes a good cover, right? And the answer I usually give is to flip the question and say what makes a bad cover? Because I think in a way that's more interesting because people, you say bad cover and people name a bunch, Madonna doing American Pie or various others that are admittedly not good. But my my kind of line is that the, uh, the worst cover of all time is a tie between every single cover that adds or changes nothing, which is a lot of them. If you're mimicking the original recording and performance down to the drum tone 
you know, and <laughs> trying to sing, then like, who cares? What's the point of that? So yeah, there are plenty that I, you know, that just tweak things a little bit here and there, but in an important way. For instance, Joan Jett doing I Love Rock and Roll. You know, that's a cover. It was originally a song by a garage rock group called The Arrows. And if you A-B them, they're not that different. Joan Jett's version is pretty similar, but, you know, the production's better. She brings a certain swagger and just Joan Jettness that the original vocals don't. And so even though on paper they're not that different, you know, I think everyone would agree that the Joan Jett version is better and, of course, made the song far more famous than it was. And there's a bunch like that. But you have to change something. And it can be something big or something small. But if you're not changing anything, that's where you lose me. Today's episode is sponsored by Morningstar Cloud VPN, the ultimate cloud solution for your VPN needs. Do you have a VPN? If not, you are missing out on one of the best tools available to enhance your cybersecurity and protect your cloud. Now, here's another question. Do you use the cloud? If not, you really need to be doing so. The cloud is designed to enhance your VPN experience so you can get your cloud data back on the VPN with the rest of the cloud. That's where Cloud VPN comes in. Cloud VPN is the ultimate cloud solution for your VPN. If you have a non-cloud VPN, don't worry, Cloud VPN has you covered. And if you switch to a VPN cloud, don't worry, all your data will be ported over from the VPN so your cloud is nice and protected. How does it work? Well, using artificial intelligence and machine learning, Cloud VPN supercharges your cloud, allowing you to reconnect your VPN to its cloud so that your cloud can work for you at what it does best, which is securing your VPN. So here's what to do. Go on over and download and install the Morningstar Cloud VPN app, connect your VPN to its VPN, and start uploading your clouds to the cloud so your cloud can VPN to the cloud so that your VPN can have a cloud which will make your cloud go to the VPN which will give your VPN to their VPN so that your VPN cloud can become a cloud VPN and the VPN will be in their ultimate cloud. So, Ray, before I let you go, I want to play a little game called Original or Cover. So I'm going to ask you about a couple songs. I've picked uh, a, a decent number of songs. We'll just go through them one by one. And I want you to tell me if you prefer, I want you to make the case for either the original or the cover, depending on which you have a preference for. I think I've chosen ones that are either like quite well known or just that. I like or that I think are interesting or that not everybody knows are covers. So you probably will know most, if not all of these. Um, and if you don't, then you're going to have to turn in the King of Covers crown. I'm so I'm so glad I upfront way earlier said that there are so many covers I don't know. That, that really takes me off the hook. It does. I kind of wish you hadn't said that because I really, <laughs> it would have been more impactful to threaten to take away your crown if you don't know any of these. You probably will so, stump me. Again, that's what I love about this. Is people stump me all the time. It's the great. The goal here is stump stump the king. <laughs> all right, stump away. 
All right, let's start with like probably one of the most famous and beloved covers, All Along the Watchtower. Obviously, originally, well, not obviously, but uh, originally by a Bob Dylan song and transformed by Jimi Hendrix. Do you have a preference for the original or the cover? I I have a lot of fondness for the original, but I think there's no objective reality, but I think the Jimi Hendrix version is clearly the better one. And I maybe the maybe the ultimate decider of that is Bob Dylan himself, who basically has ever since Jimi Hendrix did it in the late 60s, Bob Dylan has more or less played Jimi Hendrix version. Bob Dylan does not play it acoustically. He does not play it quietly, and he has not done that in decades and decades. I really like the Dylan original. I think it's I think they kind of work nicely side by side because they're so different. They're such a different mood. But obviously, I think the definitive version of that would be the Hendrix one. I couldn't agree more. I've actually met like one person who prefers the Dylan version. Um, but that's just insane to me. It's it's insane. I can see the I can see the idea of like it's refreshing to hear the Dylan version after you've sure. heard a bunch of Loud Along the Watchtowers. I think that's true. It's very different than what you associate the song with. But no, like if you had to pick one to keep and one to never listen to again, yeah, it's Hendrix for sure. Like unless you hate Jimi Hendrix for some bizarre reason, I mean it's it's in my view it's Hendrix's signature song even more so than Purple Haze. Or any of the earlier ones. I mean, I just, it's so iconic. And he did, he just transformed it. And the guitar playing is amazing. I mean, what more is there to say? Okay, Twist and Shout. The Beatles versus, honestly, I couldn't be bollocks to look up who it was originally by. I, I forget. The Isley Brothers are the most famous pre-Beatles version. And the version that the Beatles themselves were covering. There were a couple others that didn't go anywhere um earlier on but i actually kind of like the isley brothers version um that's a case where they're pretty similar again um it's not this is not watchtower dylan versus hendrix and so the beatles version's good too lennon's vocal on it particularly is i wrote i wrote about that cover in my first book and lennon you know, it was it was the they had to record it last because he would just shred his vocal cords. They recorded it at like two AM. They knew they would only get one take of his vocal because after he got to the end of it he wouldn't be able to sing anymore. Um so I have a lot of fondness for that. I'm I'm a little torn, but I think, you know, the Isley Brothers version is has maybe been a little bit buried by the Beatles. Um and it was a big hit at the time. So I I, I guess I'll lean Isley's on that. Was not expecting that. Interesting. All right. Higher Ground. The original is by Stevie Wonder. Just a musical genius, uh, but covered by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. This is just personal bias, but if the question is Red Hot Chili Peppers versus anything, I'm going to pick the anything every time. Not a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan. I No, it. so... I, I, I honestly genuinely respect what they did with it. It's one of these where they changed it a lot and and yeah. genuinely made it their own. Like if you like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, it's kind of really impressive what they did with it. So I, so though I like to dump on them, you know, I give them kudos for really hearing something different in the song and making it work in their style. It's just I personally cannot stand that style. That's fair. I uh, I have a, a a nostalgic fondness because I was quite fond of the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I was about. 13, 14, and I can still, I can still vibe on their stuff a little bit, but I, I mean, it's Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder's probably going to win against just well, that, Right, anyone. that's the other side of it. If it's Stevie Wonder versus anything, you pick Stevie Wonder. So it, it, on both sides, 
it's a no-brainer. I used to prefer the Red Hot Chili Peppers version, but now I listen to the Stevie Wonder version. I'm like, what was I smoking back then? <laughs> this is just so good. I mean, Stevie Wonder, what more do you want? Uh, here's one I think a lot of people don't know is a cover. Torn. Uh, this was most famously done by Natalie Imbruglia, but this is actually a cover uh, that was orig- of a song that was originally recorded in Danish and then recorded by a band called Edna Swap. I think that's how you pronounce it. What do you think? Original or cover? They, so this is, again, one of these, you don't, kind of in the Joan Jett, I love rock and roll that like no one even knows is a cover. There was a, a kind of viral Twitter thing. I don't remember the exact actual tweet, but a year or two ago, like basically people just discovering that Torn was a cover and it got, you know, 100,000 retweets or something. <laughs> um, we, did a, we did a big story on sort of the story. One of my writers did a big story on, on that one. You know, probably four or five years ago, maybe a decade ago, I would have said Edna Swap. Natalie Imbruglia's Torn was like during my peak of listening to the radio as a kid. I don't, I don't remember what year it came out, but I was probably in middle 1997. school. 1997. So yeah, I would have been in middle school. Um, and, yep, you know, too. I just got so sick of that song and just couldn't stand it. And, uh, you know, so lame. Um, but, you know, I, I've got a certain nostalgic fondness for it. Um, so I'm, I guess I'll go Natalie Imbruglia on that one. And for anyone who doesn't know the song, it's the Lying Naked on the Floor song from the late 90s. I'm all out of faith. This is how I feel. I won't sing it anymore. Oh, can I change my pick to the uh, the Joe version? That's my favorite version. Oh, he's <laughs> sucking up to me. He's hoping I won't hit him with any of the hard ones. Now I got to go harder on you. Uh, okay. This is, I, I, I wondered whether to put this one here because I don't know if it counts as a cover because it's really two separate songs that are nonetheless the same song. So My Way versus Come D'Habitude. So My Way obviously was, is probably arguably the signature Frank Sinatra song. This was his big comeback song in the late 60s, that kind of crooner style that he was famous for. You know, had gone out of style a little bit, but uh, he staged a comeback in the late 60s with My Way. But what a lot of people don't know is that this was originally a French song called Comme d'habitude. Do you know the original? I've heard a version of it. Is there like an original recording? Because I don't know. I don't know if I've heard the number one first. Because my impression is it was one of those songs that like got recorded a lot in relatively quick succession. So probably like the definitive... uh, Recording of the original was by Claude Francois. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the one I've heard or not. I can't remember. Um, yeah, I mean, so I'll say, I guess I'll say my way then. <laughs> Although, I mean, that, it, it's this is I, this is a sidebar, but that's kind of interesting. It's not as recent as Hallelujah, but in terms of like second half of the second of the twentieth century songs that became standards, like in the bridge over troubled water vein. I mean, that's something you would probably add to that even though as you note it you know it goes back in a translated version further than that but really really everyone's covering the sinatra a hundred percent that was also performed i think by paul anka who wrote the english lyrics for frank sinatra at donald trump's inauguration which you know depending on how you feel about that is either a plus or a minus the other funny postscript about that is that paul anka not too long ago, four or five years ago, released a album where he covered 
like in swing jazz versions of a bunch of rock songs. I remember and that. One of the songs he covered was It's My Life by Bon Jovi, which <laughs> he picked solely because there's the line, like Frank said, I did it my way. So he's covering a song that references a song that he wrote like 50 years earlier. So I always, I always got a kick out of that. A song that he wrote based on a French song. Yeah, it's right. very convoluted. It's, yeah, he's covering a song that references a song he wrote that was partly a cover of... Yeah, it's one of these chains that goes on for a while. Yeah. Um, the Green Manalishi. This is a Fleetwood Mac song that was covered by Judas Priest in the late 70s. This is early Fleetwood Mac, back when they were a blues rock band. So this is not uh, like a poppy tune. Was this one of the Peter Green ones? Do you know? I think so. I, think I, know, so. I, know, it's, I know it's obviously pre-Buckingham and Nicks, but I know they had a few guitarists. Yeah, I think I... I mean, the short answer is Judas Priest. I periodically try to go back to those early Fleetwood Mac ones. I did recently when Peter Green died and everyone was talking about how great they are. Um, there is a version. I actually did PR a decade or so ago for a Fleetwood Mac tribute album. Um, and it's mostly iconic, you know, later hits, but there's a couple covers of early ones. There's ZZ Top. I think they do Albatross and someone does the Green Man Alishi too. So I, I, I keep trying to get into early Fleetwood Mac, but ultimately, for some reason, I can't. So I'm going to go Judas Priest on that one. So I prefer the later Fleetwood Mac as well, but actually, I'm going to go Fleetwood Mac on this one. Yeah. What about it jumps out to you? I don't know. It's it's just kind of a heavy blues rock song. I just think it, I just think it sounds good. I just like it. Judas Priest, I just think, I'm not by any means a Judas Priest expert, but... They could take a song and talk about making it your own. I mean, Green Man Leash is maybe slightly close to the original, but like they did a Diamonds and Rust, the Joan yes. Baez song. Yes. That, I mean, you want to talk about two songs sounding very different with the same lyrics. Judas Priest took that song about as far from the original as they could get. So they've got kind of a history. Um, they do. Doing these. Yeah. Another one was uh, Better By You, Better Than Me, which was a cover of a Spooky Tooth song. That's right. I forgot about that one. That was the song that ended up getting them in legal trouble with people accusing them of uh, embedding messages in their music to encourage teenagers to commit suicide. So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a whole history of covers with Judas Priest. Uh, okay, we don't have time to do all of these. I, okay, this is one, like one of my favorite covers. That's why I picked, picked it. I may stump you here, but you may know it as well. The song is Head On. Originally by the Jesus and Mary Chain. I see I picked it because you, you talk about the Jesus and Mary Chain mm -hmm. a couple times in the book. And then covered by the Pixies on their last album, Trompe le Monde. I don't know if you know this one. I've heard of it. I think I think we posted a news post about it. Um or or it was in a list maybe, but no, I don't know it super well. So tell me why uh why it's your favorite cover or one of them. Well, it's I love the Pixies. They're one of my favorite bands. I also like the original. I actually am not sure I can pick. I think I do prefer the Pixies version just because it's so high energy. And the Jesus and Mary Chain version is a little bit more. It's just a little bit slower. It's not quite as. I mean, the, the singing is kind of very uh, slacker-ish, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, the Pixies just turn it into a really fast, like, punk rager. It's a great tune. 
another connection between Jesus and Mary Chain and Pixies tying things back is that they both have covered Leonard Cohen. The Pixies, of course, on this album did I Can't Forget, and then Jesus and Mary Chain did Tower of Song. We are, um, I can't remember if I mentioned, but we're working on a big Best Leonard Cohen Covers Ever thing with the full staff for next week on the site, and both of those are on there. So, um, again, not either, not necessarily bands you would expect to be, you know, they don't sound much like Leonard Cohen, but it sort of shows how broad his reach is that he's hitting Jesus and Mary Chain and Pixies as an influence. Yeah. And clearly there was some influence between these two bands because the Pixies covered Jesus and Mary Chain. I recommend checking that song out. It's a good one. Good album, too. Uh, Hurt. Obviously, originally by Nine Inch Nails, covered very famously by Johnny Cash. That one to me is a no-brainer. I think it's Johnny Cash, Um, which is not a knock on Nine Inch Nails or Trent Reznor. I mean, he famously had the quote where he basically said, I'm paraphrasing, but like, it's his now. Um, At one point, he had a different quote, which was about like, he said when he first heard it, if he said something like it felt like someone had stolen my girlfriend away from me, like he wasn't sure what to think. But then he saw that music video, which, you know, became sort of an iconic, you know, video for Johnny Cash Mm -hmm. doing it. And it takes the song, you know, to a whole nother level. Um, in, In a way, what I so I wrote about this one. This was one of the early chapters I wrote about in my previous book. And in a way, you hear Johnny Cash covering Nine Inch Nails, and that's it sounds kind of more bizarre than it is, because Hurt, the original, is not that abrasive, right? It's not that... For Nine Inch Nails, it's you know pretty pleasant and like family-friendly, um, sonically, I mean. But still, Johnny Cash just made it so poignant um, that even by the end, Trent Reznor was you know saying, like, I'm basically covering Johnny Cash now every night. I'm going to be a contrarian here. I actually prefer the original. So in the chord progression in the original, there's this one very dissonant note that Johnny Cash cleaned up. He kind of took the dissonance out of it, Mm -hmm. which totally makes sense. It makes it sound more like a believable Johnny Cash song. I think, though, if Johnny Cash had left that ugly note in, I I would give this to Johnny Cash. But I love that note. I love that ugly spiky note in the original and I, I i do quite enjoy the original that said it's totally believable coming from both of them uh lyrically and thematically i think i mean i'm not knocking the johnny cash version at all it's quite good as well yeah well johnny cash also made one other sort of controversial i guess change which is the original lyric is crown of shit i wear this crown of shit and johnny cash crown of thorns because he's not going to swear but i you know i i actually kind of like the I, I like both of them in different ways, but I kind of like the, you know, more directly, obviously biblical Johnny Cash version. But I know that, you know, people who were very familiar with the original thought that was kind of ironically sacrilege, <laughs> making it more religious. But um, but I, 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 I guess I like both. I don't know if I have a strong opinion, but that was the sort of other big change he did. Yeah, that that change doesn't bother me. I mean, nothing about it bothers me. I, I do like Johnny Cash's version, but that. That ugly note. I like that ugly note. It makes the song, it makes it stab you a little bit. And I think a song like that, it should hit you. Uh, Red, Red Wine. Originally by Neil Diamond. Recorded much more famously by UB40. Is neither an option. <laughs> Can I not listen to either of them? Uh, you don't have to listen to it. Which one sucks less? 
Uh, Neil Diamond, I guess. Marginally, okay. I don't like either of them. Red Red Wine, I'm sure. I'm sure I knew that one as a cover first. Before, probably I knew what a cover was. I don't. Maybe you know what year it came out, but I was probably also when I was in middle school, or at least I think it might be earlier than that. But I think I heard it, you know, on some radio station when I was in middle school, um, and I hated it then. And I've heard the Neil Young version since. Or excuse me, Neil Young. If, if only Neil Young did it, then I might like yeah, it. Yeah, his version would probably be great. Yeah, that, that my favorite would be the Neil Young version. But unfortunately, I've not heard Neil Young do Red Red Wine. I've heard the Neil Diamond version, um, and it's not a whole lot better. It's just not one of those songs that I... I well, I always say this was covered, that certain songs I don't want to hear covered, and they'll be irredeemable. And then someone will do a cover that redeems it, right? I haven't heard the version of Red Red Wine that redeems it yet. I think it would be hard. But I believe that out in the ether that could happen and i hope one day to have my mind changed and i feel like neil young could be the guy to do it neil young could be the guy and one last one this is just i just a a personal favorite of mine uh so the song is going blind originally by kiss you may not know this one uh or maybe you do but originally by kiss and recorded by the melvins you know this one? Oh, I actually, yes and no. I know the Melvin's version, and I know that it is a cover. I admit that I have not gone back and actually paid much, spent much time with the Kiss version. So I guess I would pick the Melvin's by default, but that's not a fair comparison because I'm not really super familiar with the Kiss original. It's um, it's kind of a ballady song, the original. Like the guitars are a little bit on the cleaner end, and it sounds a, it's it's slow, like the Melvin's version. But whereas the Melvin's really leaned into the heaviness and turned it into like a, a a doom metal song. The original is a bit a bit more like a power ballad, kind of. The Melvins do a, maybe not shocking, but they do amazing covers, not just like in their, you know, in their heyday, whenever you would define that as. But recently they did a cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Beatles song, just two oh, wow. or three years ago, like recently. And it is so good it's heavy and it's loud it's like everything you want a melvin's song to be and, and it, the, i want to hold your hand is like kind of a it's a on the on the surface a lame beatles song to choose to cover right most people go white white album or revolver or something cool i want to hold your hand is not cool and the melvin's it's it, it was on whatever year it was it was on our big year-end list of the best covers because it and it was high it was so good it's worth people checking that out i haven't heard it i will need to check it out by the way, speaking of going blind, there is also a version by Dinosaur Jr., which I believe is from one of the many Kiss tribute albums. There were a couple Kiss tribute albums that came out in the 90s. I don't remember which one that one's on, but there was a funny quote. One of the guys I interviewed in my book <laughs> told me he was just, he was, I think, just someone who, a journalist who'd written about them at the time. And he said something like, these Kiss tribute albums really wanted to convince me that Kiss were good songwriters, and they did not succeed. <laughs> yes. I remember, because I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, that was in the book. I had a good laugh at that, too. That said, I think Going Blind is actually an okay song. I even don't mind the original, and I really am not a Kiss fan at all. But I, I actually don't hate the original, and I quite like these two covers. I think the Melvins did a great job, and I actually think J Dinosaur Jr., Jay Maskus's voice works oddly well on that song because it's very different from King Buzzo's voice, you know, from the Melvins. He doesn't have that big booming voice. He's very, you know, quiet and it works. It's interesting. 
All right, Ray. Well, I'm s- sort of sad that I didn't stump you more. You but... stumped me a little. I think you you did pretty well. Yeah, I did okay. I, I, if I had tried harder, I could have really, uh, really made you. Oh yeah, look. that's that, that's that's what I was saying. No, it's not hard. If you pick, if you pick deliberately picked obscure covers, I mean, I probably wouldn't. It would be random chance if I knew any of them, just because. I mean, how many covers are there? Millions, certainly billions, maybe. It's yeah. kind of amazing how many covers are out there if you get digging. Just um, go on YouTube and you will find a plethora of covers of varying quality. 12 years and I have not even scratched the surface. So, Ray, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope that we've all learned a thing or two about covers and tribute albums. I think we have. <laughs> well, thanks so much. This has been really fun. And that's our show. A big thank you to Ray Paget for participating. A big thank you to Alex McNeil for writing the music that you hear in this episode. A big thank you to Graham Bell for creating show artwork, which he does so well, that voodoo that he do so good. And a big thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in. Now, may I please implore you to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Or if you feel so inclined, you could head on over to Patreon and pledge a few dollars a month to support this project. Have a good week, folks! Okay, goodbye now.